Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Morning. Happy Thanksgiving. You can say something back to me too. That's all right. Uh, I love the videos that uh, are put together by Joe, and uh, just when I see it presented that way, I see parts of the event I wasn't physically at, and it just makes me realize whenever our church does something, God is at work all over the place, not just right where I'm standing, and it's just so encouraging that we have the power of video to, to capture that. I hope you're really encouraged by that. By the way, do you know that if we include the staff, we actually have 206 people who served the Lord through this church in the last year? How many people with a medical background know what significance there is to the number 206? It's how many bones we have in the human body. It's the bones that keep things moving and keep us strong and give us shape. We have, I, come on, that's pretty cool. We have Anyway, you guys, whatever. My name is Dave, and uh, it's my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. And we've been working our way through a series on the Gospel of John, and we're supposed to be on John chapter 8, but it's Thanksgiving Sunday, and I couldn't resist the temptation to cheat a little bit, so I activated the time machine, I zoomed ahead to John chapter 13. Because John chapter 13 carries a story, an account of something that is so relevant for what we want to focus on this morning. Now, in my typical fashion throughout this series, I've given you an astoundingly creative title. It's Washing Feet. (laughs) And I, I just do that mainly so that when I look back on my notes years later, I remember what it was that we were trying to talk about here. And this beautiful example we have recorded for us of Jesus washing the feet of his friends. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever had someone wash your feet before? Okay. And not when you were a baby and your mother or father did it, but like really as a, an act of spiritual service and humility. So it's, if you've had that, a good number of you have had that experience. I have too. It profoundly affects you, doesn't it? We're going to look at John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Here's what the Word of God says. And I, I, lately, in the last couple of weeks, something God is sparking something in me, a fresh awe and appreciation for His Word. I, I realize that we have a lot of words we hear and speak, but only the Word of God has power to actually break through and change anything. We talk at each other all day long, and almost nothing happens. But God says one thing, and His Word, only His Word, has power to flip a switch inside of us. And I want you to know that people have shed blood and given up their lives so that these words we're about to to read could be preserved for us. So this is the word of God. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew 
that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing. He probably said that a lot to Peter. You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. So body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not every one of you, not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. It's the word of God. And as the disciples were filing into the upper room for this dinner with Jesus and with one another, they could sense that it was going to be no ordinary dinner. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you've been hanging out with a familiar group of people, but somehow that occasion, something feels different. Now, they had all been watching, paying attention, and a lot of stuff was happening around Jesus. The heat was getting turned up. The people following him were growing in numbers, but the people opposed to him were also growing in numbers and in intensity. And they knew that a standoff was coming, Something big was about to pop off. And what they were wondering is, is this it now? Is it finally here? You know, all the time when something significant happened and there was a moment where Jesus could have leveraged that momentum and gone forward, he kept saying the same annoying words, my hour has not yet come. It's not time. They kept looking at him, now? Is it, is it now? And he would always say to them, not yet. It's not right. The time isn't here. But they sensed that he was about to say something different this time. Something was about to go off. And maybe because they sensed that a significant change was coming in hanging out with Jesus, that maybe this was going to be his big move. He's going to go for it now. And so, Luke, the reason I'm so thankful we have four Gospels is that each man recorded a few different things that the other guys didn't think was important at the moment or didn't feel led to record. And so when we read them all together, we get a full picture of what went down. And I love that Luke, ever the detailed guy, the historian, records this. That as they sat down, an argument broke out among them. 
And the subject of the argument was, which one of us is going to be the greatest in this new kingdom? In other words, what they were trying to figure out is, how do we rank the 12 of us in order of importance? Because if Jesus is going to make his big move, he's going to need his crew with them, and we can't all be number two. So which one of us comes first? And I'm sure Peter just let them all talk at first. He's like, come on, seriously? And I'm sure John was like, there's only one of us known as the the disciple that Jesus loved. And I'm sure they could all make an argument. Andrew probably, because he was first, was like, I was the first one. None of you even knew who this guy was until I ran into him. So each one had a claim. Some of them might have said, well, you have no idea how lost I I used to be a a tax collector, man. And now I follow him. You think he's not going to notice that? Others had military experience, others political experience. Each one thought, surely I rank higher than some of you guys. I might not be number two, but surely I'm going to be at least in the top five. And in the midst of this ridiculous argument, Jesus is watching. I don't know if you've ever, if you have kids, have you ever just watched and listened to an argument break out among your kids? And you're like, I just, I'm not going to say anything. Eventually, they're going to teach themselves the important moral lesson as they get to the end of this argument. He couldn't take it anymore. And he finally breaks in and says, look, guys, you've got it all wrong. Yes, something big is about to happen. I'm going to make my big move, but it's not what you think. And what he's basically saying to them is, you have to think differently about power and leadership and authority. If you hang with me and if you follow me, you've got to have a radically different idea about what power looks like in my kingdom. See, out there in the world... People abuse their authority, they're arrogant, and still people fawn over them. Doesn't it seem weird to you out in the world system that the more hard-hearted, the more arrogant, the more prideful a person becomes, the more people seem to flock to them and go, oh, you're the man. You know, these guys who are beating their chest, drawing attention always to themselves, and yet we continue to worship these people as if they are the greatest thing ever. And Jesus says, that is not even a little bit how it works in my kingdom. In my kingdom, whoever thinks he's the greatest or has risen the highest must learn to shut their mouth and bow their knees and bend lower than ever. Those who are greatest among you should take the lowest rank and the leader should be like a servant. That's a radical statement. And he was saying it for a reason. See, in Jesus' day, they didn't sit in chairs. Even though he was a carpenter, he didn't make chairs. They made benches. And the way you would eat, if, if this were Jesus' day, there would be no round blue stools to sit on. You would have the tables about six inches off the ground. All the food would be set. And we'd lie like this, like stacked sticks, you know. And you'd basically have your nasty feet tucked under the butt of the guy next to you, and you just reach over like this and leisurely just put the food in your mouth. It, I think that's the best way. To, I mean, that, I wish we could go back. That just sounds so relaxing, doesn't it? Instead of sitting in a heart, you're just laying down. You're like, mm, mm. But here's the problem. When you walk around without socks, they didn't have bombas back then. They just open, open-toed sandals and walking around outside, and you're sweating. If you've ever, you know when you wear sandals in the summer? How do those sandals smell? Hmm? How do they smell after a while? I have to actually throw away my sandals every couple of years because nothing can remove that smell. Oil, sweat, funk, dirt, toe jam, all of it gets all mixed in there, and it creates a very unique, pungent smell. 
And imagine having that tucked right up under your chest while you're trying to eat. So obviously, one of the important etiquettes, the pieces of etiquette that would happen if you have a banquet hall or you're inviting guests is you need somebody, and this is like the least favorite duty if you're a servant in the household. Uh, it's your turn to wash feet. Oh, man. I will change the dung in the staples 18, stables 18 times if you would just wash the feet this one time for me. Nobody wanted to do In fact, it was such a nasty chore that it was illegal in some places to make a Jewish servant. You could only make Gentiles do this lowly task. It was so nasty. Now, I don't know why there was no servant on duty at this banquet hall that day. Maybe it was because Jesus wanted to teach this lesson. Maybe it was because he was about to make some announcements and do some teaching that required privacy. But for whatever reason, the customary servant at the door wasn't there to wash their feet. So everyone knew this is nasty. But they still reclined at the table. They still let the meal start being served. And no one would say or address the elephant in the room. I'm sure Peter was laying there like, John, what did you step in? Your feet are nasty. They smell like tortilla chips dipped in something bad. And yet here's what was going on. There's this little game of chicken, a little chess game of pride. Because it, was, it, it reminds me of this. Do you guys ever play this game when you were in college? I, 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 uh, when I was in college, anyway. Maybe this happens in your house now. I call it garbage Jenga. Where, <clears throat> you know, the kitchen garbage is full. But as you walk up there, you're like, no, I think there's still room in there. It's not. And so you, you put a little piece of garbage perched right on top, and then you gently lay the lid down, and you're like, there. And, you, and every time you have new garbage, you're like, dang, nobody changed. And so nobody's changing it. But as you approach it, you're like, no, I think I'm pretty sure I could perch one more piece on top. Why are we playing that game? Because nobody is willing to be the one who changes the garbage bag. And the reason is not because it's such a hard task. The chore itself is really not that bad. But it's because we're driven, even paralyzed, by the question, why does it have to be me? And we all live here. We share this garbage can. This is our kitchen. How come the guy who got all the way up to here didn't think to change it? And if he didn't, I'm not going to be the one. That's messed up. I refuse to humble myself. Why does it have to be me? See, that's the question, I think, that kills so much servanthood. It's not that the serving itself is hard, but it it does something to our sense of dignity, our sense of rank in the order of people. And I could do it, but I am not going to do it, because the second I do, everyone will think, yeah, you're supposed to do it, because you're clearly the lowest of all of us. And so they're playing garbage Jenga with nasty feet. Like, uh, somebody needs to wash feet, but um, there's no way I'm going to even mention it. Because the minute you mention it, someone's like, hey, that's a great idea. Why don't you send an example for all of us and wash my feet first? Jesus is watching all of this. He knows the thoughts of men. And after a moment, he goes, I can't take it anymore. So he uses exactly what's going on. He, he asks a question that puts a finger right on what's going on with them. In verse 27, he says, hey, guys, who do you think is more important? The guest sitting at the table or the dude walking around serving that guest? He doesn't even wait for an answer. He goes, obviously, duh, 
It's the guy who's sitting at the table. He's more important, but not here. I love the way the New Living Translation puts it. But not here. I know that's how it works everywhere else you go. It's the reason we love special status, premier status, rewards status, five-star, platinum, triple gold, first class, VIP. We love that junk. I, I just love the fact, <clears throat> not because I'm a baller, but because I happened to apply for the right credit card, I got silver status in something once. And when I pulled up to the front desk of the hotel, they were like, oh, Mr. Lee, well, how do you know my... <laughs> and then they hand me this little paper bag, and in the paper bag is a nasty old granola bar and a bottle of water. I'm like, what's this? I'm not paying for that. And they're like, oh, no, you're silver, and so you get this. I'm like, oh, that, that's right, I do. And right away, I'm like, it's just water and a nasty old granola bar. But I was like, oh. I got rank here. And I looked over at some of the other people. And I'm like, y'all ain't getting a bag because you're just regular hotel customers. I'm silver. We love that stuff, don't we? That's just the way it works everywhere. In fact, we go out of our way to seek it. I have gone on shopping sprees to make sure I maintain my mileage status with certain airlines. I'm buying things I don't need just because I don't want to be non Silver, non-gold, non-platinum. I don't want to just be one of you. Getting on in zone seven, fighting with someone for a place to put my rollerboard. And Jesus says, I get that that's how it works everywhere. We're all jockeying for a place of privilege, but not here. Not here. Not in my family, not in my house, not in my kingdom. It never works that way here. You don't rise to the point where you never have to serve again. It doesn't work that way at all in my kingdom. You never notice that when a Lamborghini pulls up, you always try to notice who's driving the car, but when a stretched limo pulls up, no one cares who's driving it. It's who's sitting in the back seat that matters. And that's the kind of contrast Jesus is drawing here. Who do you think, as a no-brainer, the world assumes is the most important person? Is it the one serving or the one getting served. And that's the revolution I'm bringing, Jesus says. Is that I'm going to flip the world's order on its head. You know, I always get surprised a little bit when at a gathering, especially when I'm traveling, and not at our church. At our church, y'all are really mature spiritually. You're so comfortable watching me do menial labor. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> you guys are really advanced Christians. But when I go to speak at other places and I finish my meal, I'm just taking my plate and going to the garbage can and somebody, a deacon or someone, will run across the room at a full sprint and go, no, pastor, you don't, you can't clean your own garbage. I can't? No. You're the honored guest. We have, let me do that for you. And I'm playing tug of war with a dirty plate. Like, what is this nonsense? I guess in their church, the way it works is if you're the honored guest, you don't ever do anything low. Mm. Mm-hmm. Not at our church, no. I'm not saying that as a sideways rebuke. I mean, you guys are advanced, you know, right? He can take his own garbage up. He's a grown man. And that's the beauty of, this, of the kingdom of, of Jesus, is the higher you rise, the lower you bend. 
You never rise to the point where you say, uh, I'll let someone else do that. That is beneath me. And that's so important for us to understand. I think if I could use one word to describe our relationship with Jesus most consistently, one of the words would be underestimation. I think just when we think, I get it, I get it, I'm supposed to be a servant, Jesus goes, no, you still don't get it. I know you know you're supposed to be a servant. I don't think you just get quite yet how servy you have to be. Is, is that a word, servy? I feel like that's a word my kids are using. It's, are you, you're not being servy enough. Just when you think you've got it, Jesus goes, oh, there's more. Dig deeper. There's another whole room you haven't entered. And so he uses that question and the tension that it produces. Because right away, the guy's like, oh, man, busted. He knows what's going on in our hearts. I'm not going to wash anyone's feet. And in that moment, he sets the table for this beautiful physical demonstration. And as he says it, he gets up. He begins disrobing. Because you don't want nasty foot water all over your good clothes. So he's like, let me take this off. And then he wraps a towel around his waist. And he begins to wash their feet, and you could just feel the shock ripple across the room. The shame, the regret. Because they're sitting here eyeballing each other. You knew what it was. <laughs> so one, one guy's going, you, you do it. Watch the feet. The other guy's like, no, I'm not doing it. You, you do it. I'm sure they all eventually looked at Andrew and go, you were first. Why don't you do it? And this whole time, this eyeball warfare is going on, and Jesus gets up and finally goes, you guys are so, and he's, he kneels and he starts to wash their feet. Their leader, indisputably the highest ranking person, the most worthy, important person at that table, he's the first one who bothers to get up and wash feet. If I were there, my first thought would have been, here we are, absolutely refusing to wash each other's feet. It didn't even occur to us. We should have washed his feet at least. At least there could have been some dignity saying, I'm not washing your feet, Peter, but can I wash the Lord's feet? And that's an interesting twist, isn't it? Because it's hard for some of us to be a servant to a fellow human being, but it's much less difficult to be a servant to Jesus. If they had just paused for a moment and said, at least somebody should wash the master's feet. But instead, the master gets up and washes their feet. And then here's what I love. When he's finished doing this physical demonstration, it says very clearly he got back up, put on his clothing, sat at the head of the table again, and he resumed his place of honor. What that tells us is that in the process of serving, Jesus never once lost sight of who he really was. The act of serving did not diminish his sense of worth and value. He did what none of them was willing to do, but it didn't for a second take take him down a notch in their eyes or even in his own. He resumes his place of honor and he asks them, do you know what I've just done for you? Do you understand it? You guys call me master and, and Lord and you should do that. That's what I am to you. I haven't forgotten it. But I've given you a new association with those words. You used to always look up when you heard the words master, lord, leader. You used to look up. I am teaching you consistently to look down, looking for your leaders. Your true leaders are not just the ones standing on a pedestal. 
being lifted up. Your true leaders are the ones kneeling before you in humility, serving you, doing things you don't even want to do for yourself. When he bent to wash their feet, he wasn't bringing himself lower. In fact, at the end, he was lifting them up. I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but if you raise your hand and said you had your feet washed, I experienced this firsthand this past May. I was invited to this little private retreat. <clears throat> I shared with you this before. It was hosted by a man named Leighton Ford, who is Billy Graham's brother-in-law. Um, and he's the guy who wasn't famous, but should have been. He is an amazing human being and a follower of Jesus. And he has turned over almost all of his ministry to other leaders, but especially to women. And I was so impressed by the empowering of women that I see in his ministry. And the woman who was running this retreat, she's the one who, a vision from God came to her. She sold everything. She and her husband moved to this place and bought their old family ancestral homestead. And they built this huge place on it. They called the Belfry. You know it's a big, nice place when you have to name a house, right? They called the Belfry, and they use it for spiritual formation retreats. And I knew this woman was the one with whom I've been corresponding. She was clearly the indisputed leader of that gathering. And as I walk in the door, I had just had two flights, a two-hour drive, and I had walked up this long driveway, dusty. My feet were nasty. And I walk in. She goes, David, welcome. Come have a seat. I took a picture just before she started. Have a seat. And you know how when your feet are nasty and you know it, you just don't want anyone else to even see them, much less touch them. It's like, it's so intimate, it's too much. You're like, no, no, I'll wash my own. You know, Please don't, it's embarrassing. And you know, when, when Jesus gets to Peter, Peter's like, you're not washing my feet. You don't know what I stepped in. I understand his hesitation. But as this woman began to wash my feet, something, it just, it was a really weird thing. It wasn't like she was being brought low, but I felt like I was being honored and cared for in a way that was really, really touching. And then it began to stir up something else in me. It began to stir up this question urgently, who am I serving like this? When's the last time I took that posture, really, of taking someone's nasty foot in my hand? And the way she was just washing it, there was nothing um, sensual. It was just... This loving, very attentive, I mean, like, finger between the toes kind of, she was washing my feet. It wasn't a ceremonial, splash, splash, pat, pat, pat. Like, she was cleaning my foots, all right? This woman washed my feet. There was nothing ceremonial about it. She was serving me, and it affected me in the most profound way. I understand why Peter refused, but Jesus quickly corrects him and says, Peter, this is not just a hygienic courtesy. This isn't just an object lesson. Something is missing in you. If I don't wash you, you cannot be on my team. I don't know why Peter protested. Maybe he's like, I know all these other losers let you wash their feet, but come on, I know better. You're not washing my feet. And then Jesus says, if I don't, you can't be with me. And he goes, then I want more than those other losers. Give me the full bath. <laughs> I want the platinum package, my head, my hands, all of it. And he goes, Peter, you're just so dumb. Look, <laughs> the only time he opens his mouth is to change feet, right? Peter, if I don't wash you right now, something important that needs to happen and you won't happen. And here's why that mattered. Because at the end of this passage, Jesus says, I'm going to send you out. 
And when I send you out, you're going to represent me to the world. You're going to represent me so thoroughly, so completely, that when people reject you, they're rejecting me. And when they receive you, they're receiving me. That's how close the identification is going to be. That they will decide how they feel about me on the basis of how they feel about you. So if you're, if I'm going to trust this entire gospel to you as my representatives, then you have to be the kind of people who can represent me well in this world. I can't just send you out as is. So he's reminding Peter, look, you don't need a whole bath. You were washed pure as the driven snow on the day of your conversion. That is a once-for-all-time thing. It doesn't need to be repeated. But it's clear that your heart still has some dirt on it in the sense that you have much to learn about how to be a servant to other people. Your ideas about pride and position are still distorted. They're touched by the world's kind of wisdom. And if I don't fix that in you, you're going to go out from this place as one of the highest ranking members of my crew, and you will misrepresent me to the world. You guys are all frozen in place by the question, why should I have to be the one? And I'm giving you a new question. Why shouldn't you be the one? Why shouldn't you be the one who serves? I'm going to land this plane here with a couple observations from the very first verse. The first is that Jesus was showing love to his own. And I want to just make a brief comment about that. He's showing a special kind of love to his 12 closest friends. He had about 120 other people that were relatively close followers, Out of that 120, there were another 72 that were a subset of that. And out of that 12, and out of that maybe three. But this was his inner crew. And he loved these men differently than he loved everybody else. John 3.16, which we all know and memorize, clearly establishes that Jesus loved the whole world. Okay? It clearly establishes that people who didn't follow him, who weren't part of his faith system, he still loved them with a deep and sacrificial love. But in this washing of the feet, Jesus is demonstrating and expressing a very special kind of love reserved for those who were his own. He wanted them to see something, to receive something that told them, you are not just part of the crowd to me, you are in my family. I love the whole world but I love my family differently. I hope that makes some sense to you, even if you have a painful family story. You understand, don't you, that yes, you can love all people, but you're supposed to love your family a little bit differently. I hope that's true of you. And what Jesus is saying is, I love everyone and so should you. But there needs to be a special kind of love reserved for those who are in the family of Jesus. I want to say this as gently but as firmly as I can. I have known Christians, and I've had seasons in my own life like this, where I am so drawn to, I am so patient with, I am so quick to love and serve the world. The unbelieving person who's clueless, who's profane and all of that, and yet I see in them an honesty, a, um, a transparency, a helplessness that draws out of me a desire to serve them quickly, to love them well. And I've seen many Christians who are quick to do that, but they're much slower to love their own brothers and sisters. 
infinite patience for the, the world that doesn't believe. Very short fuse for their fellow brothers and sisters. That breaks my heart. They say it's the heart of Jesus to love the world and to be impatient with Pharisees. Okay, yes. But Jesus showed a special love to those who were his own. When I was a freshman in college, I rushed fraternities at the University of Illinois. And boy, talk about a lot of hype. You know, that's the definition of hype is fraternity rush in a school like U of I with over 50 houses. And I went to about half of them. Here's what I saw. Guys half drunk standing on tables going, we have the greatest friend. We have the best brotherhood. We get the best grades. We get the best everything. And I, they were trying so hard to convince me that they were going to be really, really good to me. And I didn't believe it. See, that's just salesmanship. When you're really enthusiastic to the person who's outside the circle, that could just be salesmanship. Who knows what it is? But I was watching the way they treated each other, and I'm like, none of it is real, man. See, if I go forward with you, I'm going to be that guy sitting next to you, and you haven't looked at him once. You haven't said a word to him. You haven't shown any kindness. You talk about brotherhood like it's a great idea, but I see none of it evidenced in this house right now. Ultimately, that's the reason I didn't pledge a fraternity. I was sorely tempted, man. It, it seemed like a world of promise, the best of everything. But it was because I didn't see any reality in the words they were saying towards one another. You know, Jesus says that our love for each other is our identifying mark to the world. It's great that we love them, but soon they will be us if everything goes well. And it's not how we treat them, it's how we treat each other that really reveals the substance of what we think about and understand when we use words like love. I'm not suggesting that every act of love to the unbelieving world is salesmanship. Please don't hear that and go home upset. What I am saying, though, is your real grasp of love, of divine love, is most evidenced in the way that you love your own family in Christ. Because that's the bond that you didn't create with your altruism and your concern and your sense of justice. It's the bond created only by the blood of Jesus. And you recognize, I would never be friends with you out there. But in here, you are family to me because we have the same experience of Jesus. You are my family. Special grace, special service, special patience, special affection is reserved for you. And that is what I'm inviting everyone out there to come into. I want you to be a part of this beautiful thing we have inside this house. That is the invitation. So I want to challenge you because you're about to have an opportunity to make some commitments. I want to challenge you to think not just about the people outside, but I think for some of us, God is really going to challenge you to renew your commitment to serve and to love someone very close to you, someone already in your family who needs to see better, different, deeper in the way that you serve and love them. I also want to highlight this little phrase, and I'll I'll close. As he bent, I'm fully convinced 
that with this act of washing feet, he is kicking off the, the, the tremendous dramatic events of that weekend that would ultimately lead to his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. And all those amazing events around which our salvation hangs are kicked off by this simple act of washing their feet. That's what started it all. And I think what Jesus is trying to say is not that in the act of washing your feet, I'm demonstrating or revealing the full extent of my love. That would be shown on a cross. But I think what Jesus is saying is the same heart that will drive him to the cross drove him to the floor to wash their feet. I don't believe for a second that a person who won't wash your feet will hang on a cross for you. It's a dirty trick, but you can do this to your teenager. Do you love me? Would you die for me? Oh, yeah, Dad, I'd die for you. Could you take out the garbage for me then? <laughs> it's so dirty. It's so unfair. But there's a, there's a logic and a truth in that, isn't there? You can say you'd lay down your life for someone. Empty words unless we would also lay down our time, our pride, our money, our energy, our freedom for someone too. I don't believe people who won't bow before you to wash your feet will take a hit for you. You know, Tim Keller, who pastors or did pastor in Manhattan, in preaching about this text, he brings up the story in the NFL of taking the hit. Usually the quarterback is the prima donna of the team, the highest paid member in most teams. There comes a moment when the game is on the line that if he, he sees his receiver and he just needs a little more time to get open, and if the, the quarterback will hold the ball just a little longer, he can get that guy right where he needs to be and he can complete the pass. But on the periphery of his eye, he sees a 300-pound defensive lineman barreling down on him. And he knows that if I just ground the ball or throw it away, everyone's like, ah, oh, the receiver didn't get there in time, and they'll reset and have another down. But if he holds the ball just long enough, You see, because as long as a quarterback is holding the ball, he's fair game. He's an open target. The minute it's out of his hands, you can't touch the guy. You're like, "Ah," right? Avoid any, any contact. So there's this idea, this concept called taking the hit where the quarterback knows he's going to get pummeled. It's going to be down to milliseconds. But if he holds it just one more second, his man will get open and they're going to score. And he makes a calculated sacrifice. I'm going to hang on to it. I'm going to take the hit. I'm going to throw that ball. I'm going to get killed. (laughs) But once in a while, that's what you do for your team. And the person who won't do that isn't really a part of that team. He's using the team for himself. But he's not beholden to, obligated to, the other people on that team. I share that because on any team, we're going to need to learn to do that for each other. What Jesus does in washing their feet is he begins to show them, this is what my love looks like. And this weekend will unfold events that will show you just how deep it runs. But it begins with this simple act, and I want you to learn from it. And he even says it so explicitly, do you know that I've set you an example? I'm not just doing this to bless you. I'm doing this to teach you that this is how we roll. That if you will name my name, and if you want to run with me, you've got to learn how to be comfortable wearing the garment and the identity of one who serves.
maybe in a room full of 206 people who served this year, I'm preaching to the choir. I don't feel this urgency like I got to tell you, you all have to learn how to serve. I don't think that's the message today. You know how to serve, Harvest. I've seen it. We've all seen it. This is a church that serves. We are orders of magnitude above the national average in terms of percentage of our congregation that actively serves. We have blown that number well out of the water. I think we have quadrupled the national figure. Give yourselves a hand. All right. Okay. But the challenge this morning is not just to serve. Now, if you're not one of the 206, I'm not here to shame you. I'm here to invite you. We would be delighted if in the remainder of this short year, that, that the, the month that remains, you would hear the call of God and the invitation of your church. You have something that can make a contribution here, a gift, a resource, just you yourself. And if you're not one of the 206 who will receive a gift of appreciation and gratitude, you still can be before the year is out. I want to invite you to do that. But if you're one of those who serves regularly, here's the invitation. Explore the, what the full extent of love looks like in your life. I know you serve, but is Jesus calling you this morning to go deeper in your service for someone or something in particular? I'll finish up this way. And I want to invite the, the, the greeters to begin distributing these things. You're going to get, we didn't want to leave tennis balls out because I know that. <laughs> You guys would have had a tennis ball fight before the sermon was over. And it would have been very distracting. If you know anything about me at all, and you don't need to, but if you happen to, you'll know that I grew up playing tennis. Uh, very well, by the way. <clears throat> and in my youth, I really lo- I was obsessed with tennis. And as I learned and tried to perfect the game of tennis, the one stroke I worked most rigorously on was what? Do you know? It wasn't the backhand, it wasn't the forehand, it wasn't the volley, it wasn't the drop shot. It was the serve. The serve. And the reason I worked the hardest on the serve is because it's the first stroke of every point. It's the stroke you can't avoid. I can run an entire point running around the ball to hit only backhands if my forehand isn't working that day, but I can't get around the serve. I have to do the serve. It's not optional. And what's more, the serve is the one stroke that sets the tone for the point to follow. It forces a certain kind of response from your opponent. When you serve, it's impossible for the person on the other side of the net to just ignore it. It demands a response. And the nature of your serve defines so much of the response that you get. I used to try to perfect the flat-on, just fastball, major league fastball serves. I would be so happy if I missed and the ball hit the net and actually got stuck in the mesh of the net. That's when I knew I had finally gotten my speed right, is that I could stick a ball in the net itself. If you've never done that before, you just need to know how incredibly manly a thing that is. <laughs> and uh, I've done it about three, four times in my life. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to serve so hard, you'd just be like, what was that? Okay? The serve starts everything It demands a kind of response. And sometimes you do the hard serve, you demand some sort of a a quick response. Others, you do the Kim's convenience, sneak attack. A little curve, a little spin. Everyone's like, whoa, what happened there? But it, it just requires a person to relate with you. 
There's power in serving someone and in serving someone well that immediately bonds you to that person in some sort of engagement. And when you learn to serve well, some very interesting things ensue. Back in the 80s, Pastor Chuck Swindoll wrote a book called Improving Your Serve. I think he was a tennis player because he had a series of books, Strengthening Your Grip, Improving Your Serve. I'm like, is this guy a tennis nut or what? Book was okay. But it reminded me how important the serve is. So here's, I want to just leverage, maybe you didn't grow up playing tennis, but I just, this is such an important symbol for me. When I see a tennis ball, there's a flood of memories and ideas that come to my mind. So I'm hoping to lend you that association. At your table are a bunch of Sharpie markers, or if you're going to be a Pharisee about it, some Amazon Basics markers, okay? And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to give you some quiet to think about this for just a minute or so. But don't just think. Listen. I think the Lord wants to say something to us in this room. And at the end of a minute of reflection of listening prayer, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Take that marker and write on your ball the name of a person or a ministry or a cause or something which you sense Jesus is saying, I know you're serving. I want to take you deeper. I want you to explore the full extent of your love and the way you serve the person or the thing that you write on that ball. And then I'm going to ask you to take that ball and put it somewhere where you can see it on a regular basis in the next month or so. Let it be a physical, visible reminder to you that the Lord has prompted you and you responded in faith and is holding you accountable to follow through now. And then if you journal, pay attention to what happens as you try to follow through on that commitment. A good serve prompts a good response. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.